If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. Yeah, this is Houston, we're copying. Uh, everything is go here. We shall fight on the beaches and in the streets. We shall never surrender. I manage just to rewrite history, cause I'm in the mood to Label us the leaders of the leaders of the new school This ain't for the radio, can't find this on YouTube This the type of killing that these critics say used to You're a group of happy rebels You've said no to the rules of the game and the regulations of the day You've said no to the conventional wisdom You're all originals In this day and age I got time for innovation Time to be creative, time to Good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening to 90 Proof Wisdom Podcast. We're here today with Randy Watt to discuss a little bit about Afghanistan and how we can help people out. Don't forget to subscribe to 90 Proof Wisdom Podcast. If you love us, let us know. If you don't, let us know. And thank you again for listening. Love you all. Hey, good morning, everyone. We're here again today with Randy Watt. As you guys know, we had him earlier on on the podcast discussing some of his background. He was he served in Afghanistan, and I thought it would be a great time to reach out to him today again to talk about the craziness that's what that's going on in Afghanistan and kind of what's led us here. And I thought, what a better person to reach to than Randy. So we've invited him back. No, it's soon, but it, it's uh, timing is everything. And this is an important time for us to sit down and learn more and get some insight from someone that's been there early on and then served multiple times, right? In- yeah. Well, I went to Afghanistan one time. I was there 0102 very early on. Um, I was a major then, a special forces major, what's called a, an AOB, Advanced Operations Base Commander. So um, I started out in Karshikanabad, Uzbekistan, which is where we were operating out of, uh, where the special forces teams were operating out of. And I was what's called the isolation facility commander, uh, December, January, um, February, Mar- first part of March timeframe. Then right around the first part of April, I went down to host Afghanistan, East Central Afghanistan, as the AOB commander on the ground. And uh, so I ran the war in host province and part of Pakti and Paktika provinces. I had two special forces, a teams uh, in uh, host down in host area with 250 Afghan militia. And I had two special forces, a teams in Gardez uh, with about 250 Afghan militia. And so we prosecuted the war. It was a, it was a special forces fight. Then uh, my mission was locate and destroy enemy forces, maintain a presence in the regional core area, deny sanctuary to the enemy. And we were very good at it. Um, and it didn't start. It didn't start until late, later O2, fall of O2, really transitioning to a conventional fight, um, to a conventional kind of a war, large uh, U.S. conventional military. Um, footprint in various places, which was the wrong shift, in our opinion, those of us on the special ops side. But uh, it happened. It's, it's past history. We can't uh, do anything about it. But uh, because I was in charge of that region, I was negotiating with warlords. Uh, I was uh, I, I put the, the regional governor in place, and it was my responsibility to protect him while we built his security force. Uh, we were doing training missions for the Afghans in actual combat operations. Uh, we were doing a wide variety of things necessary. Uh, very quickly, we had destroyed the Taliban in terms of their military structure, uh, October, November, uh, by December of one, We had destroyed the military structure uh, of the Taliban, and they'd broken into small groups. We had driven al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda um, was operating very openly in Kabul, in and in the surrounding major cities, uh, supported by the Taliban, they were in Kandahar. Uh, you may remember when uh, when Al Qaeda was driven to the Tora Bora region, which is a, a very very um, mountains rugged. rugged. Oh, it's it's incredible. Yeah. And, and then um, uh, March, we had Operation Anaconda, which was designed to destroy the Al Qaeda remnants that were in the Tora Bora region. Uh, kind of a famous thing, Operation Anaconda. Um, you know, it it's painted as a as a prettier picture than it really was because the operation was kind of messed up. Uh, there's a book by Sean Naylor called, uh, um, I think it was called Not a Good Day to Die, uh, which is about how messed up the Anaconda um, operation was. I, I was there for all of all of that stuff, and then um, I left uh, late October of uh, of 02. So I was on the ground in command from April through October, working directly with the Afghans, working with the governors, working with the tribal elders and, and chieftains, uh, trying to 
fix things with the warlords so they'd sit back and, and not create further issues. Dealing directly with the Haqqani network. It wasn't the Haqqani network then. Uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani was still alive. Um, Is he a good guy, bad guy? Bad, bad guy. Okay. Um, and the Surahuddin uh, Haqqani, his son, is now the head of what's called the Haqqani Network. Uh, there's a $5 million bounty, U.S. bounty, on Surahuddin Haqqani's head. Uh, he's just been named the interior minister for the new Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So I guess we're not going to collect, try to collect on his on bounty. him. But he's, a, he's on the high <clears throat> terrorist list, and he's now the interior minister of, of Afghanistan. And there is not a greater representation of how screwed up this whole thing has gotten. So as a as a layman, right? I, I've never served in the military, and mm-hmm. hindsight, I told you early, I was too weak. I was scared to death to serve. I, yeah. At eighteen, there's no way I could have pulled it off. I just made me nervous. I was afraid of the draft when two thousand one happened, and I'm like, wait a second, I I don't want to do it. I was just too weak and scared, you know. But now I think they should do us like angry old men because I'm ready, right? And as yeah. a as a standard, just regular citizen, and we watch what's happening and the craziness and the pride that we carry as Americans. Like, how did this all fall apart? Where, where is what? What do we stand for, really? Then, yeah. right? And so when we we look at you and say, "Hey, help us kind of dissect where 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 how we've evolved to this, where we were." We had a mission that we wanted to go for, and then we just kind of ditch our people. Like, we have some allies and troops and Americans over there. How do you turn your back? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm a, I'm a, I retired as a colonel. I sat on a brigadier general's promotion list for two years and didn't get picked up, so it was time to retire. I had a total of, of uh, enlisted and officer time, active duty and guard time of 33 years, 10 months to the day. Um, I'm a graduate of the U.S. War College, which is the finishing school for generals. I spent a year in Carlisle Barracks at the U.S. Army War College, which is all about strategy, which is all about uh, tying, uh, tying those, uh, those efforts of national uh, uh, effort together. We, we speak in time, we speak in terms of, of, the, of the four primary powers for accomplishing our national interests, and we call it DIME, D-I-M-E, uh, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. And so State Department and other government entities, you know, play this joint role. People always referred to the M military as the big M, as they should. Um, a lot of Americans don't understand the whole dynamic of, of countries and leaders and so on. But think of the fifth grade. Back, uh, I'm quite a bit older than you, but you might have still been doing recess when you were in elementary oh, yeah. school. Think of the playground, fifth grade, the playground. Oh, right. dodgeball, During recess, yeah. right? Crazy fun. Right? You had... Monkey bars? Leaders. Oh, yeah. Right? You had little groups. Clicks. Of people, clicks. And this group, you know, wanted the tetherball pole. This group didn't want to relinquish it. All right? How right. Did, how did how did, we, how did we do that? Um, you had this group um, that decided for whatever reason they wanted to bully that group. Um, you know, how did those things you know, get worked out? In fact, it's, <laughs> Just, that's yeah, it's, it, in my opinion, it's one of the great failures of our current education system is we don't have recess because you learned a lot out there. Now everybody's pecking order, king of the hill. Yeah. Oh, what, whatever happens, don't let anybody be bullied. Well, I got punched in the mouth in the seventh grade by Roger McKinney, uh, and, and I learned a very, very valuable lesson. I could lay on the ground and and moan and cry or i could get up and and i knew i was going to lose and i did lose but roger mckinney got marked up pretty good too uh, <laughs> he was seventh grade uh or i was seventh grade he was ninth and so but the problem for me was um the problem for me was laying there on the ground was there was a certain young lady watching uh, and that kind of that kind of leveraged get something there right so if you think of that dynamic think of foreign countries all right some are bullies some are gentlemen, some are soft, some are hard, but everybody has something they want to gain. So diplomacy is the, is the art of discussing and negotiating and compromising and reaching agreements so that you accomplish some of your aims and I accomplish some of my aims. Well, in the international arena, the single largest thing, all right, that allows for competent negotiations is to have a position of power, a quiet position of power. That's what the military does. All right. When we start trying to deal with a, 
bully in a foreign country who's bullying his neighbors, and it's in, it's in direct contrast to our national interests on the ground in that region, we have this iron fist that is inside that velvet glove that is doing the negotiating. If you don't have an iron fist in that glove, all right, it's just a piece of cloth and nobody cares and nobody listens. And then there's another important component of that, and that is you've got to bring friends to the discussion. You've got to have allies. Right. Right? You've got to have countries that, that want to work with you and are willing to jointly conduct um, events with you. When, so the media is saying we're turning our back onto them and to our allies. And that's exactly what has happened. This is the this worst. This, this situation is the greatest moral fa- failure by a presidential administration in the history of our nation. Period. Because I would disagree. Of, not just because of what's happening on the ground, but because what it's done across the globe. I mean, when when Parliament stands up, censors. When British Parliament stands up and says we will not do a joint effort or operation with the United States until there's a change in administration, okay, and condemns, literally condemns by word, condemns the actions of the United States and how they're handling Afghanistan. That hasn't happened since 1775. The wow. British have, you know, we went to war, we became friends, they came back in 1812, tried to push us around, all right, burned our capital, all right, we kicked the crap out of them again, and uh, they went home, we became friends. And we've worked together all over the world. No greater friend to the United States than Great Britain. And now they're saying, we're not doing a thing with you. And you look around the country. What message have we sent to future countries we may have to work with to solve problems that are in, in, in our national interest? To me, we'll just quit. Yeah. Well, we're your friend today, but we're going we're gonna to fail you and quit on you a year from now. And not even tell you that we're going to do it. You'll just see that we did it. Yeah. That's how so, I feel, but I may be wrong. Again, I'm not. That's, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you, how did the whole cookie crumble? What well, do you see? So normally, um, the, the way it starts, you can start with, with the Trump agreement, but what, and, and, and this is what, uh, president Biden and his, and his team, uh, keep throwing out there, you know, well, my hands were tied, the Trump agreement. No, the Trump agreement had certain conditions built into it. You have to recognize we hadn't had a serviceman killed in 18 months in Afghanistan, right? Since the Trump administration took over and sent a strong message uh, to the Taliban. Look, here are those conditions. One, we're going to keep a small presence in Afghanistan. We're not going to have a big f- troop footprint, but we're going to keep Bagram Airfield, and we're going to keep special operations on, operations on. Now, think about the strategic value of a footprint in Afghanistan. If you're worried about Russia, directly north. If you're worried about China, directly east. If you're worried about Pakistan, a nuclear power, whom we give tremendous amounts of aid to quietly, annually, as part of their process and attempt. If you're worried about what Iran, directly west, okay? if you're worried about that buffer uh, of those stands, if you're worried about Turkmenistan, if you're worried about Uzbekistan, if you're worried about Tajikistan and above it, Kazakhstan, as a buffer in that region to help prevent um, Chinese expansion and, and or Russian expansion, although Russia is not in a situation economically right now where they can really do a lot of expansion. The thing, in the thing in the Ukraine is about it, all right? That's about as far as they can reach right now. Uh, but China is the problem, right? China is the problem. But you look at that, you look at that. What better place would there be to be strategically located? Than Afghanistan. Right? To give your friends and even some fair weather friends like the stands, um, to give your friends a sense that, look, they're here and they're available. Right? So the, the, the Trump plan included keeping Bagram, keeping special operations and an intelligence footprint there, some conventional forces to protect the base and, and hold it, and it, it, essentially a launching platform. Think about it in terms of our counterterrorism strategy. Right? Look, uh, that, region, that region in terms of terrorism is fairly famous. And whether you're talking about uh, the um, um, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which is an al-Qaeda-linked group, the IMU in Uzbekistan, whether you're talking about Al-Qaeda or ISIS, which are on the ground in Afghanistan, what better way to deal with that than to have 
specialized forces on the ground in this small footprint who are doing uh, strategic surgical missions to, to keep Al-Qaeda on its heels, to keep ISIS on its heels so that it can't export its terror because it's too busy protecting its internal locations, bases, personnel, and so on. Um, and so that was part of the Trump plan was we're going to hold that little piece. We're going to be present. We're going to pay for it. We're going to pay you, uh, pay your government. Um, the other piece was told the Taliban, no movement forward, no movement into the cities. All right. No taking over. You must learn to work with and you must become a part of the Afghan legitimate government of Afghanistan. And that was another piece um, that was required. And uh, and he was quite upfront about it. I mean, you can read the transcripts of what he said. You can listen to to. And he said he told the Taliban when he talked directly to them, I'm going to obliterate you. You don't follow this to the letter. I'm going to obliterate you on the ground. And for 18 months. The Taliban is out in those outer areas. They're in those valleys and areas, but they're not moving on. They're not killing. They're not murdering. They're doing their thing. Then January 20th occurs. We have a change in administration, and immediately the Taliban starts moving. And we watch this period of time where they're moving in. They're taking over the larger cities. They're moving towards Kabul, but we're not doing anything. Because it's a new administration. Um, They're worried about other things. Yeah, the Taliban are not afraid of being obliterated anymore. Right? I mean, because they, they can see, they can read the tea leaves. They know which way this, this uh, administration is going. And the administration is negotiating, the new administration is negotiating its own way out of Afghanistan as a very large political um, effort. Sure. So they're not paying attention to the impact or the effect of loosening the reins on the Taliban. Do you, do you then, think they're not paying attention or do you think they don't care? Uh, <coughs> part of me says, part of me says, and I hate to think this way, part of me says it's part of a plan. And I'll, I'll mention that here in a minute. But so then what happens is we cut off, we cut off the money. The new administration tells Afghanistan, by the way, you're on your own. Get your government form. You, you know, you've got 300,000 well-trained soldiers, which they did not have. The military scoffed at that. We knew they didn't have, it, have that. Uh, you've got equipment. But that equipment was maintained by U.S. contractors. Right? They didn't know what they were doing with that. You don't teach, um, you don't teach people who don't know how to read. Right? How to maintain. How to maintain computer systems. How to... How to um, how to maintain, repair um, software systems, hardware systems, even simple weapons systems. Um, you can train them how to be good foot soldiers. You can train them how to be good tactical level, ground level commanders. But in terms of large-term strategy uh, and in terms of large-term uh, capability, you have to have an educated force. You have to have, you have to change the whole dynamic of how this country, the foundation that's underneath this country, uh, in terms of education, economics, opportunity, and that takes generations. That that isn't done in twenty years. Uh, you know what's sad is like you're you're talking all these levels, and there's a just a TV watcher when it comes to Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only thing we know. It's it's so different than what we perceive as a just a standby citizen that watches what we've the been news. told, right? Well, what we're told every day on the on TV. You don't think about all these different levels that they're working with people that can't read. They're working with people that are really. Yeah. I mean, they're thousands of years into this system, and we're trying to help evolve into something mm -hmm. that may be better for them. But we don't understand that. We're just saying, hey, bad people, there's bad people there. Mm -hmm. We're going to send our troops in, and they're not going to bomb yeah. or, or uh, destroy the World Trade Center again or yeah. anything like that, any other asset on our ground. So let's just fight over there. As, at a high level, that's the only thing I understood is if we keep the fight over there, they won't come here, and that's it. Right? That sounds pretty uh, elementary, but that's really all we understand as, as media watchers, right? Yeah. So you have a different lens than, yeah. than we do. Have. Sure. Uh, but, okay, so uh, back to the primary question uh, of how did it all fall apart. So that's the start of it. Change administration, different administrative goals, um, um, Trying to get alliances and allegiances. The whole goal of the new administration coming in seemed to just undo the previous administration. That's what, cause what, what does the new administration do? Yeah, what do they do in the first week? They undo all the executive orders that undid all the previous Obama administration orders of which Joe Biden, Biden was a part. So, um, so that happens. And there's a whole different focus on, on 
on the world, alliances, allegiances, and it's going to start with Afghanistan. We're going to make this, we're going to get this great big political win by pulling everything out of Afghanistan, giving it back to the Afghanistan people, let them solve their problems. Um, and everybody, everybody with any ounce of, of, of intellect, I could see and knew anybody that's in the know about uh, th- that situation, that arena, that area, knew this was that was just another failure. That's why President Trump's plan was not to completely leave, and it was not to take the money away. It was to continue to shore up the growth of of this uh, Afghanistan government and keep the Taliban at bay, because we went there for one purpose, and that was to ensure that that country never became the base of of terrorism again. So we decide. The administration decides we're going to pull everything out. The way this normally works, it's called a non-combatant um, evacuation operation or a NEO. We, we speak in terms of a NEO, N-E-O, uh, non-combatant evacuation operation. Normally what happens when we're doing that, the military all right, is the supported command. They're the primary effort. And State Department is the supporting effort. Okay, that's to deal with the transportation, that's to deal with um, all the paperwork in terms of identities, that's to deal with the vetting. But the military has command because we have the training, the knowledge, the experience on large-scale logistics, logistic operations, and those kinds of things. For whatever reason, it was decided that the State Department would be the lead and the military would be the supporting element. Well, State Department has no understanding or capacity of how to do this in a hostile environment in a rapidly collapsing environment high threat environment so that was the first thing uh the second thing was the presidential administration had decided on a certain number by certain dates you're going to be down to this number of personnel by this date when you disregard everything else when you talk let's let's talk about the tooth to tail ratio so when when the public is told Oh, there are 900 soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan. The picture you get in your head is 900 guys, dudes with helmets on and body armor and stuff full of magazines and an M4 and ready to fight. No, that's about 100 out of 700. You have clerks, you have cooks, you have drivers, you have aircraft mechanics, you have, they're all military, right? Right. They're not gun holders necessarily. The, the tooth to tail ratio for every gunslinger there is in the military, there are about seven support personnel in order to make that happen. So the tooth, we call it the tooth to tail ratio is about one to seven. Right? Mm. So if you have 700 people on the ground. Right, Only 100 guns. You got 100 armed guys to man gates. They can do that 12 hours a day. And then they have to be down. To, so you have 50 guys ready at any given time to deal with hostilities. You could probably protect this building with that. that. Okay. Probably protect your fences in the surrounding area. That's it. How do you protect an airfield? How do you how do you protect something, you know, half the size of the Salt Lake Airport with gates all over the place and with so you have this this Herculean effort. That's why we had to put three thousand Marines back in. Three thousand Marines back in. Right? was because of the size of this effort. But we could only protect, to a degree... Kabul. The, no, not even Kabul. HKIA. Hamid Karzai International Airport. That's mm. it. We weren't protecting Kabul. Hamid Karzai uh, International Airport is just on the outskirts of Kabul. There's no way we could hold Kabul. So it fell. And since the U.S. Embassy is in the heart of Kabul... All right. They moved the personnel to the airport to try to run operations. Well, all of their support systems were gone. All, all of their translators were gone because they're locals. Okay, All of their interviewers are gone because they're locals. They're now in hiding because the Taliban saying anybody who supports the American effort. Is it. To go. So this, this whole thing was, was like a very bad dream. Um, now, in the last few weeks, it has come out that the military told them, that this isn't going to work, and this is why. Uh, but they said we're going to do it anyway. Uh, it has come out that the intelligence agency said, "Look, there's a likelihood that the Afghan National Army and the Afghan government are going to collapse rapidly as the Taliban moves, and we believe the Taliban are capable of taking 
taking the capital in three to four weeks. Well, it took him 11 days. Um, and so it, it just all fell apart. It was, it was bad planning, bad understanding of the dynamics and the effort, failure to put the right people in charge. Uh, and, and now what are, what are the after effects? Our allies are saying, not only did you screw this up, but we're not going to play anymore. Our future allies are saying, it's not smart to play with the United States, particularly with this administration, because they're going to leave you. Um, our enemies are laughing. China, it, which is our biggest enemy. And, and yes, there's this interesting juxtaposition, if you will, in terms of China, because keep in mind back there, even though we don't hear much about it, and even though nothing much is going on, keep in mind the Biden family connection to China. Huge. Yeah. Uh, financial, economic efforts. And China is now inside Afghanistan. And we left them, what, $250 million worth of stuff? Probably well, not only more. that, uh, the single largest untapped reserves of lithium in the world oh, are in Afghanistan. Right? Chinese need lithium big time. Chinese control about 90% of the lithium uh, market production now for batteries, electronics, all those things that, that we buy. And we're North. taking all our cars that direction, so I mean. Yeah. So everything related to that, it's huge. It's a, it's a huge piece. Uh, Taliban, uh, Baradar, the Taliban leader, uh, what was it, four days ago? He's standing at a press conference. Who's standing next to him? The Chinese ambassador, if you will. And, and the Taliban are saying China is our largest ally. Okay? Uh, so here, here are these things. And you start connecting the dots and you go, okay, so uh, I had a, a senior military friend who's, who's retiring. He can't, he, what he, it's, these are his words. I can't take this anymore. Um, these are his words. Look, at these high levels, you cannot be this incompetent. It has to be a plan. There has to be a plan behind this. So I'm not going to get down the conspiracy theory road, but you have to wonder, okay, how could we be this incompetent? How could our military generals fail us so greatly and still be generals? Uh, how could our senior State Department officials still try to claim a win, largest airlift, airlift operation ever run in the history of the United States? Nice try. Not true. But you get the point. Um, bad planning. Wrong outcomes. Wrong people. Poor management. Wrong people. Um, failure to recognize the long-term strategic impacts and effects. It's an absolute, absolute failure. It's an absolute disgrace. It's it's pretty sad watching, right? You look at it, and I don't even understand why wouldn't they just destroy the American assets that were there? You see, there was some video of a helicopter. They did some. They did some. Yeah, but some. I mean, some. Why didn't we just do the rest? Right? Didn't have enough personnel or enough time. Yeah. So from the time they said leave, yeah. you can't when, when I was it. in Baghdad in oh six oh seven, I was the counterterrorism advisor to the Iraqi National uh, Counterterrorism Unit, and <clears throat> excuse me, into the National Command Headquarters operated. Uh, with, with my uh, teams out of the uh, out of the uh, uh, FOB Shield, which is on the edge of Sadr City, uh, near the Ministry of Interior, because we worked with and uh, the MOI commandos, and we worked with the the National Command Center, which was the Ministry of Interior. Uh, so that's where in, in countries that are formed like that, when you see Minister of Interior, that's who runs your national police forces. That's okay. who maintains internal security. That's where your intelligence agent, internal intelligence agencies are. Ministry of ministries of defense, they defend against external enemies and threats. Ministry of Interior defends against internal threats. Uh, so we're working with the with the Ministry of Interior, uh, with the National Command Center, which handled terrorism and and uh, what they called level one crime, which is organized crime, cross border crime, uh, you know those kinds of of things. Um, when we would get hit and we would lose a vehicle. Uh, on the roadways or so on and so forth in our in our movements, well, we'd burn it in place. Uh, we were using up armored um, suburbans, up armored uh, Ford excursions, um, and uh, and we just burn them in place. Uh, we, we didn't want the enemy to 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 get something that it was pretty. It's pretty standard among the military. If we put an aircraft down somewhere, you know, we'll remove the sensitive electronics. If we don't have enough time to remove the the sensitive electronics. You know, we'll use thermite grenades and we'll burn this thing to the ground. Uh, we don't want anybody to have anything. When you look at when you look at everything we left, 
in Afghanistan, and you look at the numbers, you look at the numbers of, of armored Hummer, Humvees, you look at the number of, of armored personnel carriers. Just guns. You look at the aircraft, you look at the... There was, there was no way to have enough people, enough munitions, enough thermite, enough anything... To destroy it. To destroy all that. All right? I mean, let's face it. Some of that... When we left Bagram, we left Bagram in the middle of the night. The Afghan... The, the commander of the Afghan security forces that secured Bagram hand-in-hand hand with the United States forces, what did he say the next day? The Americans are gone, and they didn't tell me. We just left. We loaded up we could. We left. We left parking lots full of vehicles lined up row after row. We left aircraft on the ground lined up row after row. Um, we left armories full of ammunition. We left armories full of weapons. There was no way to... Unless, uh, unless you know, we'd have brought... Fast, fast movers over and bombed it. Yeah. There was no way to do that stuff. There was no way to well, Why wouldn't you this. do that? Why wouldn't you bomb it? Well, there, there were Afghan National uh, Armed Forces on the ground ma- yeah. working side by side with us. So you don't want to hurt them. Maintaining security. We'd have to, you know, yeah. we'd put a lot, of, a lot of people at risk. We'd have lost a bunch of Afghans. Now, that would really have gone over well mm-hmm. um, in the world. Well, we're so. not doing a big favor right now anyway, right? So it's like one forward, one back. Yeah. So we've turned our back on them anyway. So anybody that allied with us, yeah. and, and again, I don't know a whole lot, but yeah. it, you'd think that they're the first ones that the Taliban would go after, like, oh, it is. U.S. allies. So, so what, what, that, what happens to those people? Yeah, what, yeah, well, they're in hiding. Right. So what well, happens? How do you, what do you fix? How do you fix it? Uh, right? we, we try to get them out, which is this Herculean effort that we've got going in spite of our own government. So you, what happens is you have people like Special Operations Force personnel Guys like me who spent time there. So what happens is as this begins to collapse, we had maintained – one of the things you never do um, if, if you're a special ops guy and you go into a country and you establish networks and you establish relationships with people, when, when we do leave, we improve things, we don't give up those relationships because may, we may need them again in the future, right? So I still had personal contact with people that I'd worked with, Afghans that I'd worked with. In Afghanistan, uh, just about every commander did. Uh, every every uh, senior, every team member, every Green Beret, whoever at the country, every SEAL ever at the country, who worked with an interpreter, they would develop some kind of bond, and then we would continue that relationship uh, over time. So as things started to collapse, people in Afghanistan began to reach out to me, and they said, "Hey, you got to get us out of here. This is this is what's happening." And that's happening with all kinds of former um, special operators. It's happening with all kinds of formal. My former chaplain from my unit who had deployed to Afghanistan a couple of times and trained chaplains for the Afghan National Army, Muslim mullahs and others, uh, to be chaplains, how to be a chaplain and support the Afghan National Army. Um, They're getting calls. I mean, say, hey, this is collapsing. Anyone and everyone they can call. Right. And, and and some are getting murdered, and we're getting contacted by the family members. We're getting contacted by the son. We're getting contacted by the wife, by the daughters, and saying so-and-so was murdered by the Taliban. He was taken out shot in the street, um, and they're hunting us. Um, uh, how do we you know, get... So all of a sudden, things start springing up. Task Force Pine- Pineapple starts springing up in, in those last days. Uh, Freedom Alliance starts springing up. you got all these loose organizations, and they're reaching out. Uh, to friends, uh, to businesses, to corporations who are friendly with with former military commanders and leaders. Keep in mind that many generals are on boards of major corporations and so on. And this loosely defined effort begins to extract people from Afghanistan, to put rat lines on the ground, put air routes in, do clandestine recoveries, identify key officials that are under threat, get them out, so, but doesn't it seem like they're fighting the U.S. government on that behalf too? Because yeah, Biden it, just we said were. Hey, we were um, no more the day before the airport fell. One and so this effort gets semi-organized. I've got a team. We've been working now seventeen, eighteen hours for uh, three weeks, two and a half, three, almost three weeks now. Uh, all retired. All when I say retired, we have we all have businesses. We all have 
uh, sure. other things to do. We have families uh, to care for. But we're putting 16, 17, 18 hours a day in right now trying to find ways, trying to find synergy with other groups to move people. Before the airport fell, we were able to get people out. We were able to get people out kind of wholesale. You had aircraft. You had Glenn Beck's effort. You know, Mercury One landing airplanes in, in Kabul at, at Hamad Karzai International Airport, or HKIA, as we, as we call it. Uh, and so... Uh, and so what we were able to do is we were able to get key people at gates and we were able to get word to families and to people. If you can get to this gate, we'll get you through. Um, and so we were starting to do that. But the State Department started pushing back on that, saying, hey, look, you know, we're going to do this properly. We've got to do we're saying there's no time. And they start refusing to enter. The day before uh, HKIFL shut down, okay, well, the day before they stopped taking civilians and we're only taking out military personnel because the last two days they were only taking state department and military personnel out the the day before there's a bus this bus was put together by one of my friends with another organization um working there's a bus with 44 u.s citizens with passports right in hand at a gate for nine and a half hours yelling and screaming Waving their passports. We're Americans. Suffering abuse from the Taliban who are laughing at them, cursing them, slapping a few of them around, threatening some with guns uh, for nine and a half hours. And the State Department would not authorize the military to let that bus onto the base. They got left. They're now in hiding in various places in Kabul. And, And the State Department tries to deny, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, when the president comes out and he says, well, all U.S. citizens who wanted to get out got out. He's flat out lying. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to paint a picture that those that are stuck there chose chose to be there. Mm-hmm. And many of them are Afghans. Sure. And they don't want American to be there either. citizenship. We've been there 20 years. Many Afghans have helped us to the level where we've been able to get them citizenship. I've got three of my former interpreters. Two are here in the United States. One is in England that we were able to help get the paperwork done over the years and get them here. They're all here. They're landed immigrants. They've got the right uh, Mm, green card holders, the two here. The one in England is now a citizen in England. It's their families I'm trying to get out. Their families were still stuck because they they weren't able. Yeah, you can't can't get your U.S. paperwork done and then automatically bring your family over. There's a long period of time. There's applications. There's vetting. There's a long—so the families are stuck. And so this is, these are some of the people that I'm working, I've got my team working on trying to get out. But once Kabul fell, that made it very hard. Once the, we closed down operations at HKIA, that ended. Now, now what we're getting at is we're getting trickles. We're getting a little bit here. We're able to find a smuggler network that'll take three or four or five people. The cost has gone up, and, and that's okay. A lot of people yell and scream about the opportunism and, you know, I've seen people on the internet talking about, you know, sarcastically that capitalism is alive and well in Afghanistan because it's costing $65,000 to get, you know, five people out. It's costing $12,000 to get a person out, depending on which route you use and so forth. What they're not understanding is just to get the, what would normally be an 11-hour trip from Kabul Four hours to the border, another two hours. It would normally be about a six-hour, if you could do it straight, six to 11-hour trip from Kabul to Peshawar in Pakistan. It takes four days. Because at certain points, you have to hide. At certain points, you have to wait until the next shift at that checkpoint. There, there are, as of yesterday, there were 12 checkpoints between Kabul, on the road between Kabul to Peshawar to the border, on the, the Afghan border on the road to Peshawar. And so you have to wait until the right people, the ones you have an agreement with, to bribe. You have to pay all, all along. Way, every gate. So you got to buy food. you got to rent safe houses. you got to pay <laughs> gas for vehicles. you got to rent a vehicle in some cases. Okay? And you've got to House. pay off officials, and that's not cheap. You know, you've got to get... Taliban at this checkpoint and that checkpoint to look the other way as you take your people through. And Afghans work all this stuff out. Well, and 12,000 is not bad. They're paying that to come from Mexico almost. It's 10 grand, yeah. right? I mean, and that's just a quick hop, right? Yeah. And 
So twelve thousand is it sounds expensive, but that is a human. So that's not so, expensive. Yeah, so the, <laughs> there is that me. question. What <laughs> right. do you you know what, what's the value? What's what what do, what dollar? Right. You know? And I don't think there is one. But the problem is is that twelve thousand of them might as well be a million. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. it's it's one thing to have twelve thousand United but States. The, the biggest problem right now, I can I could get people out into Pakistan. I could I can get people into Tajikistan, I can get people into Uzbekistan. But the State Department's gone around and asked those countries not to accept Afghan. Why would they do that though? So that's on our side. It's really hard to hear that, and, and obviously believe, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying I don't, but yeah. it's like, hey, how do you convince me that that's really what the United States would do? That's I never something. I think the biggest thing they're do. worried about is having to. Well, first they have to they have to enter into agreements with these countries. They have to enter into agreements, and that means they have to pay. Right? United States. Does. We have to. Yeah, we have to set up camps. And we have to feed, house, and we have to do all the processing. So we got to move. State Department personnel, large amounts of people in to do processing, to do fingerprints. To do. Which they're not ready we to do. We have to do biometric comparisons because here's the opportunity for terrorists to move people into the United States. Um, depending on the type of application, first you have American citizens, all right, passport holders. Then to you have be green, right in, right? Green That's card our job. Holders. Four of the people I'm trying to get out have green cards, all right? I haven't been able to get them out yet. Um, you would think that they'd be among the first to, would get out. They were not. They were loaded twice on airplanes on HKA and, and kicked off twice and kicked back outside the gates, and they end up getting stuck. So they're stuck. Um, so you have, and then you have what they call SIVs or special immigrant visas, and these are the ones that, that you applied for. You indicated that you essentially need asylum because there's a threat against your life. You have letters of support from... I thought, wait a second, that's what Biden's supposed to support, right? We need all the asylum holders, you know, the seekers. That's what we want. Right. And so this SIV, you have to have a letter of support from military members or American diplomats that you worked with, you know, those kinds of things that support the threat and support the the movement of personnel. So you have that piece. Um, And then you have people who didn't have time to get any of that. You have the next level of application... Uh, in terms of asylum and getting to the United States, it's called P1 and P2 applications, and they're based on certain criteria. And a P1 or P2, you cannot apply to the embassy in the country where you live. You must go to a third country, right? You must go through the processing, and you must be one year in that other country to go through, to allow the State Department to do the full vetting process, look at you, ensure that, that, that you're not connected to a variety of things, uh, which are not good for the United States, and then you can be moved to the to a reception center in the United States and go through some processing and be released to you know families or cities or wherever there are groups will take you. So, in order in order to do that, and there are thousands of Afghans who fit the criteria, thousands and thousands of them that fit the criteria after twenty years serving there, you know, of us being there, who fit the criteria. That's an immense project. And I think the State Department's just saying, look, we, we can't do this. We can't handle it. So please don't accept them because we don't have the, the means or the will or the administrative directives to do this. So don't do it. Uh, and then, of course, you've got um, the 2022 midterm elections looming. Campaigning will start pretty heavily here in the fall, fall and early winter. Um, Which gives, could potentially give horsepower to one side or the other. Well, right. and yeah, and so one of the considerations, you know, where it is from the pundits and those who study this stuff is that Democrats are scared to death about the 2022 uh, midterm elections because this administration has not done well in anything. Um, if you look across, and you, if you measure effect and you look at performance, hasn't done well at anything. Um, and, and there are questions about leadership and there are questions about capabilities and there are questions about who's actually in charge and there are all these questions. So you have this spinning kind of administration thing. Um, and and so if they could calm this down, if they could get this horrendous situation that they caused, if they could get that... Do you think they're nervous about it or do you think they're just fine with how it is? Oh, no, they're scared to... Do- the, 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 they seem fine with it. When, you know, Biden talks, he's like, oh, it's a win. Well, they're they're trying to they're trying to paint it in a favorable light. They're trying to spin it into a, a favorable light. Um, 
We know it's not true. So, oh, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. you. I mean, when you look at everything else, there was a guy, they were, they were flying American helicopters, hanging people with the other day, right? They were showing that. Is that well, a real video sure. or no? I'm not sure that's true. I'm okay. not sure that is, I'm not sure that's a true representation or image. Do I know that the Taliban are killing people? Yes, because I've had people on the ground say call me and tell me, look, they just took so-and-so out of my neighbor's house, shot him in the street. I believe them. Sure. Right? Media, we, you can't believe anything right yeah, now. Yeah, we know that. We know the story about the pregnant police woman who was shot and killed in front of her family. We know that's true. It's documented by the um, documented by the press who were on the ground. Uh, foreign press, but, I mean, they're vetted. We know those things are true. Uh, the thing about the helicopters, um, I didn't like. The video, for one. Well, I didn't like the way the f- it looked. It kind of reminded me of the Sasquatch sighting stuff, where stuff is a little bit blurred and, okay, and sure. so on and so forth. And I didn't, I didn't like the way the the individual was hanging. It is, the way his body was was hanging it didn't look right. It didn't look right for someone who's been hung around the neck and is dead. So, um, got it. But I'm not saying it isn't. But I'm not saying it is because I like to have better corroboration. You mean Facebook's not a fact? Yeah. <laughs> There's checkers. I've, I've fallen prey to Facebook a couple of times by getting emotional and grabbing sure. onto something and shipping it out. And it's then if fun, somebody, though. Then have somebody point out to me that, you know, it's crazy. So, And you know me, as we've talked before, I try to keep emotion out of, out of all this stuff. The effort. Huge stuff going on. We're doing this, all the groups, not just me, all the groups, we're doing this in spite of the U.S. administration. We're working out deals of our own. Uh, part of a team I'm working with was in negotiation with Kiesbeck leaders yesterday, not involving our State Department, not involving uh, our military. Um, so we have, you know, retired people, high-level people. We have all these good Americans, all these patriots are saying, look, this isn't right. We've got to make this right for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And we're all working together. And we're having small wins. And we're going to continue to have small wins. At the strategic level, we're trying to bring everything out into the light so it forces the State Department and essentially the presidential administration to change their position on this and get fully on board and moving it. Um, based on some of the things that we've done, you saw uh, Representative Walls uh, yesterday on the news talking about the State Department should be uh, grabbing onto this uh, a public-private partnership. You've got all these groups out there willing to put you know, their, their people in harm's way, willing to put... Um, willing to put the effort in, willing to rent the helicopters, willing to do the things necessary. So the state should play their role, and they should establish the camps for processing, and they should allow these teams to public-private partnership. That verbiage is directly out of some strategic thinking and planning we were doing and in disseminating as groups, mm-hmm. as large groups, uh, to our representatives. I've written letters to our Congress congressional delegation here in Utah. Uh, uh, con- Congressman Stewart and Congressman Moore have... have um, have helped me with some of the stuff, but they've also said, look, we, we can only take this so far because we're getting pushback from State Department. Um, State Department is not agreeing not or allowing point. certain things to occur, but we're putting pressure on on your behalf. Uh, Mike Lee's doing a, a tremendous job uh, bringing this stuff to light and putting pressure on. Um, and so uh, I think I'm hoping to see change. But in the meantime, we're continuing forward. Private money is is being utilized and needed and needed. It's huge. It's, yeah. it's huge. This these to get people out is has a cost to it, and it's all in dollars. Um, you know, I have a I have a plan underway. I have a good plan in place, but I'm not able to execute because I need uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars to get this. But I think I think there's a seventy percent chance, which is a very high yeah. outcome in terms of what's going on. I think I've got a seventy percent chance of getting three hundred people out. Um, for $250,000. So it's just a matter of finding uh, the money because a lot of people are reaching out uh, looking for that. A lot of GoFundMes have been set up. I think people are starting to get a little bit wary about donating. But So on the Glenn Beck one, mm-hmm. he did, uh, what was it, a $20 million round, right, that they ended up right. raising amazing quick. I mean, right. really, really fast. Right. Why did he have to go dark? He says, hey, we have to go dark. We're working in the background. Do you know why they, he had to say that? Well, or? one of the things that's happening... Um, some of the stuff in the planning involves activities that would be um, suspect. Uh, and they're done, you know, friendships. If, if we're, 
we've essentially become, if I move people to Pakistan, from Kabul to Pakistan, You're human smugglers, move right. them in, move them into a safe house, move them forward to um, the southern beaches, bring a boat in, pick them up, take them to a humanitarian center in another country. I'm technically violating a bunch of laws, right? Um, right. If if I fly a helicopter from Tajikistan into Afghanistan, and I pick up people and I take them back to Tajikistan, I have Tajikistan's um, support. But what are they doing? They're looking the other way at the invasion of a sovereign airspace and sovereign land uh, of a country. Now, there is no government in place. There is no, and we haven't officially recognized Afghanistan, and which, if we recognize the legitimacy of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, um, we're never going to survive that internationally. Uh, there's no way. If we let a government that we put in there get overridden, the IGOA get taken down by bandits and terrorists, and they put their own government in place, and we recognize them, we establish relations, which is a formal uh, process, and we put an embassy back in there. All right, we may as well give it up in other parts of the world because it just that's just an absolute failure. Yeah. Just shows uh, that you don't have to listen. It shows you're a fair weather friend, um, and it and it shows you go with whichever way the tide is going. Um, and and Afghanistan, it's in our national interest. We keep talking about national interest. National interests are what f- further uh, the um, the ability capability of a nation. Okay. Uh, for instance, it's in our. It, it had been in our national interest to protect the oil supply coming out of Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and other countries that were coming to the United States and allowing us to continue. So it was in our. It was in our national interest to protect Saudi Arabia um, from Iraq back in the nineties. It was our national interest initially to uh, try to uphold the government in Venezuela because uh, of uh, oil and the kinds of things. Our national, we talk about our na- national interest. Well, that's what, that's the underlying foundational governance piece that's important throughout the world is protecting national interest. Um, it's not in our national interest to allow China to control the mines and the lithium supplies in Afghanistan. Not when we're there. Yeah. Just give it to them. Now we're just turning it over. Um, it was not in our national interest in terms of regional hegemony and the um, and the situation, the Asian situation, it was not in our national interest to give up our foothold in Afghanistan. Um, it was not. A, it was not in our national interest to allow the government in Afghanistan to fail. Um, no, it wasn't a Jeffersonian democracy, and it never would be a Jeffersonian democracy. That's that's a unique situation to the United States, but it could have been a growing um, and effective economy. It could have been a growing and effective governance. It could have been growing and effective national stabilization program for that whole region. Uh, and our presence would have an effect on the whole region. Don't you think it's funny that they, that they tried it for 20 years and it failed? Well, it takes longer than 20 well, years. Well, no, it, yeah, well, it takes longer than 20 years, but uh, keep in mind um, uh we we never solidified our goals for Afghanistan. We never identified exactly, well, we never developed a long-term strategic plan, and it's hard to do when administrations change every four years, particularly when they are so diametrically opposed to each other. You know, Yeah, completely opposite. Yes. Polar opposites. Yeah, so, um, and, and, and you have, you have these, the underlying foundational basis for their philosophy and their ideology and what they're doing. When those Which for things, China's an edge, right? Because they, they have yeah. one guy that can march his plan yeah. for right. 30, 40 years, whatever that so, is. So, I mean, when when the guy that you support to be president, that you helped be president, and that, I mean, they had an election, and, and it was sure. a good election, and they elected uh, him president. But as Kabul starts to fail, he fall, he heads for... Qatar, and he takes $170 million from the national treasury with him. Um, you know, why, why does that occur? What does that speak? Right. Yeah, he was the president of Afghanistan. Um, and, and then the other piece is, 
um, I mean, if you look historically, the other pieces, Afghanistan, interesting dynamic. Uh, my maternal grandfather emigrated to the United States in 1911 from Afghanistan. So I, I'm one quarter Pashtun, um, whatever that means. That's just my genealogy. Um, I've been, you know, a Canadian and an American my whole life. Right. So uh, I've been a Christian my whole life. Um, uh, my genealogical roots go to Afghanistan. Um, but when my, when my grandfather came over in 1911, the borders of Afghanistan were different than they are today. Um, following World War I, um, 19, I believe it was 1919, uh, in one of those agreements, we divided up the Middle East and created the borders. Well, the Taliban are part of the alliance of Pashtun tribes. My grandfather was a Pashtun. Uh, he was a, a Patan. His tribal allegiances were Patan, uh, P-A-T-H-A-N, uh, which is a form of Pashtun. Uh, so, um, in the minds of the Pashtun, there's still a there's still a nation called Pashtunistan, and it's eastern Afghanistan and western Pakistan. My grandfather came from the Swat River Valley. Uh, when he grew up, he, he was born in either 1880 or 1882. We don't know because he, he didn't know, and there were documents that said, you know, those, mm -hmm. those two days. He didn't know how old he was. He knew roughly how old he was. But, um, and he came from the village of Mekboon in the Swat River Valley. Well, in 1919, when they moved the borders, that became part of Pakistan. That's just inside Pakistan. But my grandfather said, borders irrelevant. That's Afghanistan. Mm hmm um, and so you, we, the Western powers kind of made the region and identified borders and, you know, and, and made things the way they are. And they're not, and keep in mind that, that these tribes, these peoples, they, they place great stock in their history going as far back as they can remember. So they've been independent and they've been dealing with invaders since you know, time began. Mm -hmm. uh, many people have, have tried to conquer Afghanistan and um, been una unable to do it. The longest that held it, I think it was Genghis Khan, it was the Mongols who held that region to some degree um, for about 300 years. Alexander the Great had a great impact on it, but he was only there, I think, uh, 26 or 27 years. So you, you had, you know, Chinese invasions, you had Mongol invasions, you had Greek and Roman invasions, you had all these invasions, and then the Afghans just put up with it. You know, that, there's that saying um, that you hear about, and it's true, because they would say this to me. In fact, I will tell you that, um, that one of the warlords, very powerful warlord that I was meeting regularly with, um, the warlord of the, the Zadran tribe, his name was Pachakan. Pachakan Zadran, um, big warlord who helped the Americans um, help the defeat the Soviets. And uh, anyway, Pachakan said to me, he said, you guys won't stay. No one has stayed. Lots of people have made promises to Afghanistan. Never stayed. You won't stay. Um, and he's right. And there's that saying that the Afghans have, the Americans have all the watches, but we have all the time. Um, and it's true. We do things in very short periods of time. Look, we've been arguing for 17 years that we should be out of Afghanistan. But nobody determined to set the conditions on how to leave. in which we would leave stability, in which we would, in which we would be able to protect our national interests, and how we would leave Afghanistan. And as politicians revolved through various offices, plans changed. Um, Along with we, the agendas, we, right? we suck as a nation at long-term strategy, and we've gotten worse and worse and worse. Isn't that sad? It is. So back to your plan. How do you, how do you how do you see that working? What is a process that we can help you figure out how to take care of three hundred humans? What does that look like for us? And I don't. I think that's more urgent. Like we're talking yeah. weeks. Oh, it, there yeah, is we're talking days. Of time. We're talking yeah. days. Um, yeah, for me, it's it's fundraising. Um, for me, it's it's in or you know for that plan, it's coming up with two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. For 
across this whole effort, it's it's money because you have to you have to these things. Airplanes cost stuff. Um, you know, helicopters cost stuff. Buses cost stuff. Bribes. And, and by the way, a bribe to us is a bad word. In Asia, it's just business. Right. It's just business. Um, you know, when I was working in Iraq, and we would talk about um, you know contractors trying to get contracts to build things, U.S. contractors trying to, get, and we they would talk about bakshish, and 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 you know, to Amer- Americans would pound the table and say, "Well, it's bribery." Uh, there's no word in Arabic for bribery. Bakshish mean bakshish is is Amen. essentially a set of fees for us to do business together. Um, it's not viewed the same way. It's not viewed the same way at all. Um, so. The reality of that region and everything is money is the big deal. Then the second largest thing is to put significant political pressure on so that the administration changes its point of view about how to deal with the Afghans that we need to get out of there. How we deal with our brothers and sisters who supported us for so many years and whose families are at risk uh, and create the processes and the camps and the various things necessary, except that their solution to Afghanistan has created this problem accept responsibility for the problem and help fix it and fix it. Yeah. That's concerning to me. I mean, if a U.S. passport holder to me, that is the number one obligation in the United States and the commander in chief, right? That was the initial role yeah. of him was to be over the military to help the States align in their decisions. If I'm not mm. mistaken. Right. And where's he right? That, that should be, look, I don't care. We have one American on the ground. If it was because of an American operation that he's there, then we need to make American operations to get him out. Mm-hmm. One, Yes. Let alone multiple. There, there's another piece to this, uh, to Jeremy, and that is this. We're not going to solve this in a month. We're not going to solve this in 10 months. This is going to take several years. Guys like me, my team, we're committed until the last Afghan is out. So how do they help your team? I don't know if I can keep the pace of 17-hour days, but um, we're committed until we get the last one out. So We, we made a promise. Yeah. We're going to live with that promise. How do we help? What, what's the best way? Is And the next question I'm going to ask is, question of is it legal can you help this operation yeah oh yeah yeah it it's, is it's not a it's, it's not, not a, a no deal uh, mercury one uh glenn beck's they're taking donations they raised you know 20 million something dollars in Days. donations crazy in, in very short period of time um everybody else it's all legal it is legal mm. that's the first first thing second thing is start putting pressure on your elected representatives and asking them to put continue to put pressure on the administration to change their stance on well, I think it's easy for us to get complacent, right? We sit here in our comfortable homes, oh, yeah. and I yeah. have a great job, and I work with yeah. great people every day. Yeah. It's pretty easy for me not to pay attention to Afghanistan or other Americans. But what if we just changed shoes for just five minutes and say, hey, you're over there. Mm. We're over here in our cushy chairs. Mm-hmm. And all it would take is a phone call, an email, some pressure. You'd probably hope that that person would do it, right? You'd hope that the Americans that are here are helping you get back and that you're concerned I, enough and not just written off because you're I not I talk here. to my families every day. Every day I get two or three texts, secure from texts Afghani from Afghanistan on the ground describing the conditions and begging me to get them out. I had one yesterday saying, you know, they were next door. Taliban was next door. Uh, they took so-and-so away. Uh, please, they're right here. Uh, please get us out. Um, it's heart-wrenching. I mean, the stress of this is on everybody. Mm-hmm. The stress of this um, is, is, is incredible. Um, I had uh, one of one of my associates, um, one of the people they were trying to get out, was taken out, and murdered. We 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 have it, we know it. Um, they were taken out, and murdered uh, by the Taliban. Um, I could tell you story after story of that, those exact things, uh, and they were murdered because they they uh, supported us. They rolled the dice and said, "I'm going to go in on the side of the Americans," and I can't think of a greater violation of our promises and, and, and our core identity as Americans than to leave these people uh, on the ground to fend for themselves. And, and they have no ability to do that against some of the most evil, um, I'm trying not to use a bad word, sure. some, some of the most evil individuals, in, individuals, some of them, I mean, they're, they're doing the work of the devil. It, I mean, it's just, and you know what, it's, it's different to sit here. You watch what the media wants to feed you. Mm-hmm. And then you've had the opportunity to be on the ground and see it and help us understand more at a ground level of what that looks like. You don't see it. Like I, we sit there, we watch TV and we're like, well, that looks like a bunch of, that's a mess. And yeah. we're probably right and they're wrong. Yeah. Well, what's kind of interesting to me is if you, if you look at the players, you look at Tim Kennedy, you know, he was on the ground. Uh, you look at, uh, you look at uh, the various 
various groups and, and who, who are with those groups and who are there. Everything from, you know, Tim Ballard from Operation Underground Railroad, he's running Beck's effort. Uh, all that stuff on the ground that's occurring. And, and, and who's behind it all? Uh, it, it's all uh, U.S. service members who served and who believe in the promises we made. And they're backed up by corporations and people who, who believe in the American identity that we don't leave anybody behind. And I think there's a great, uh, more great Americans a than there are less of yes. that, right? I think there's more people that believe what you said yes. than the opposite. Yes. And, I, and that's what's exciting about Americans, whether they're showing that on TV or not. I think even Ken will be the first to probably wear an American shirt, right? I mean, we all identify in the same family, and I think it's a brotherhood and sisterhood that's amazing. And unfortunately, we got 2% of the population that hold a microphone that want us to believe different. Yeah. And I, I know we have the opportunity to ride in airplanes and buses and just be on the streets every day with, with our fellow Americans. Yep. And I would say that by far large majority love each other, regardless of what Absolutely. the news wants to Absolutely. say. They can play the racism card, the woke card or whatever, yep. but when it all comes down to it and I have to sit by whoever on the bus, guess what, I love that person anyway. Yep. They may have a view that's opposing to mine, but I wasn't. I didn't grow in their shoes. Right? I wasn't there, I don't know how they started, I don't know where they got there. But yeah. I, I really enjoy the conversations with most. I have yet, fortunate knock on wood, yet to meet a really mean person that I wouldn't want to hang out for three and a half hours on a plane to Atlanta or whatever, right? I, yeah, I don't know that you're capable of being that. Um, because you're you, one of the things that you know, people like us you know, in this room is, is we're strong in our own identities and we don't feel a need to, to act or to do certain Great, things. Yeah. There, there's nothing to be gained from that. Um, Nothing at all to begin from that. We stand strong in our principles, and, and we go from there. Well, and I'm proud. I'm proud more than anything to be American. I'm proud to have people that represented yeah, America well, like you, Randy, absolutely. and the career that you've sacrificed, whether you feel like it was a sacrifice or not. Because yeah. from our side, I could say you're really proud of that sacrifice, which is yeah, great I, and thankful. I wouldn't change a thing. I'm sure you wouldn't. wouldn't and we're thankful for that. And I'm paying the price for it physically, you know. Well, I mean, sure. You know, not true, I by call, the way. I, not I call true. it paying for the exuberance of my youth. Well, no, uh, you should see your exuberance at the gym. I'm still at like 40% of well, what you're doing. He you comes over to me. You just don't know how much it hurts. <laughs> He's like, are you going to stop talking and work out today? I'm like, really? I just was talking for four seconds. Leave me alone. Yeah. So, well, right, thank you so much, Randy, for being here. And everybody, again, 90 Proof Wisdom podcast here. And uh, we really appreciate you. And we'd love to have comments and concerns and questions. Again, you can reach out to me. It's 90 Proof Wisdom at gmail.com. Thanks God for listening. You. Hey, God, God bless, bless you guys friend. and God bless everybody. Have a great one. Thank you everybody for tuning in to 90 Proof Wisdom Podcast. Hopefully there was a takeaway for you. If you like what we're doing or even our efforts, tell your friends about it. Let us know what, what we could do better. Again, thank you for listening to 90 Proof Wisdom Podcast. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button.